Good morning and welcome back to the Making and Medicine podcast. Uh, today we're joined by myself, Miles, Sway, and one of our uh, guests, Dr. Jill Harden. Okay, so um, we've worked very hard to, go, to get you guys this collaboration, this interview. Um, so we're going to have a little bit of fun. We're going to talk about uh, some, some of Dr. Hardman's or... How would you like us to... Jill is Jill? absolutely fine, okay. yes. So we're going to talk about a little bit of Jill's career, research, a little bit about the NHS, and any other topics that we might find uh, <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Okay. So just to get us started off, um, well, we've already had this discussion a little bit before, but mm-hmm. um, what do you think about the culture of uh, medical students calling doctors by their first name or things like that? Ooh, interesting. Well, I... <laughs> Okay, so (laughs) I did explain earlier that I um, often have a tendency to talk in depth about some things that I'm particularly interested in, and this might be one of them, but um, I think um, we've had some discussion actually up at the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh recently. Places like Australia have scrapped this notion of Mr and Miss for surgeons, I'm sure you know where it comes from. Back in the olden days, Mr. and Miss, the surgeons didn't have uh, professional qualifications as doctors. So they were always apprentices, barber apprentice surgeons. So we had this tradition in the UK. And certainly growing up as a postgraduate doctor, I was desperate to pass my MRCS and become a Miss because that, you know, that, that set you apart from everyone. Now, as I think about it more, I think, hang on, why am I trying to set myself apart from anaesthetist, for example? Why should there be a distinction in a qualification and a title compared to the other team members that I'm working with? So I started thinking more and more about doctor. I also, as a raving feminist, for want of a better word, find it tricky that my whole uh, relationship status is bound up in a title. That seems odd to me. Um, so the whole miss, misses I find a bit tricky. I think we are all doctors. We are all medically qualified. And so being called doctor is in some ways a bit more of a leveller. I'm not sure why we want to make that distinction. I think it's interesting. We've talked about surveying the membership at the college in Edinburgh to see what surgeons would like. Do they want to be doctor? Do they want to retain the miss, Mr. title? Uh, And I think we might be surprised because I think surgeons actually quite like it. We like being a bit different, don't we? We like having that distinction from the people around us. Um, I've just finished doing my PhD, so uh, Doctor Doctor is my official title. And so that's why I've kind of gone back to Doctor. Ultimately, I introduced myself to my patients as Jill. Um, Jill Hardman, one of the surgical doctors, Again, we as a society have quite a fixed idea about what a surgeon looks like. So often my patients don't accept I'm a surgeon even when I've taken them through the entirety of their operation and their surgical pathway. So again, that becomes quite different. You know, there's a privilege in being able to choose your title when you know that people will believe you do what you do. Whereas I do think it's very important for female surgeons, for surgeons who don't meet our cultural norms of what a surgeon is, hold on to those titles. You become a professor, you use that in every conversation as far as I'm concerned. So it's a tricky thing. That's a longer longer answer than I'm sure you're expecting. Yeah, because I know in Canada, 
even the doctors call each other doctor. Or it's mm. always, always by title, isn't it? Yeah. And we kind of see it training in the UK. Mm. Doctors tend to tell us, oh, just use our first names. Yeah. And it's kind of, do you think that's... I think, uh, so I, I teach a lot of human factors and non-technical skills. We talk about a hierarchy quite a lot in medicine. Hierarchies are managerial structures and they will always exist. What we refer to more and what we're thinking about culturally is this idea that there's someone at the top and people below them. And what we're describing there by saying refer to him as Mr. Such a Body or Professor Such a Body in the department is really strongly maintaining that authority gradient or that hierarchy. So for me, it's much more important to me that people know that I'm a human being and my name is Jill. <laughs> um, yeah. And I'm happy because I wouldn't call my scrub nurse Mrs. Suchabody. Uh, I wouldn't call my scrub nurse Rob Mr. Rob. <laughs> yeah. You know, so why would I expect him to call me doctor? But we do still have that in place. And there's also the idea of when do you become qualified enough, senior enough to start calling the person next to you by their first name. You know, it's a minefield. So I think, you know, I very much am comfortable with giving people permission to call me Jill. I'm your colleague. Uh, I just happen to be 10, 15 years ahead of you in this game. <laughs> um, but that it's really no more than that. As long as, you know, I hope that there's still a level of respect that comes yeah. with the fact that you recognise I might know some stuff and I might be a few years ahead of, ahead of you. But I don't think you need to use a specific title to, mm. uh, to show me that. And, and if we're not doing it with the other members of our team, why are we so uh, attached to it in surgery and in this really steep authority gradient that we work in in surgery? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, you yeah. raised a lot of very important points <laughs> yeah, in, that, wow. in that answer. Um, I think that could be a whole podcast episode in itself. It could Absolutely. be, yeah. Um, I think, I guess, just so uh, we and the people listening kind of get to know a little bit more about you, yeah. I guess one of the burning questions a lot of people will have is why would you choose a career in cardiothoracic surgery? Ridiculous life choice. I have no idea. Uh, yeah, well, I should say, I'm sure you'll preface this. So I'm, I'm a cardiothoracic registrar, I'm an ST7. Uh, which means I, I graduated from medical school in 2010. I went to Barts in the London. I then, um, I, I went to Barts in the London. I went as a graduate, so I'd done a BSc in physiology at Liverpool before that because I didn't get the A-levels I needed. Let's put that out there. Uh, and I did my BSc and then went to medical school. And during that time, I worked as a healthcare assistant. Uh, and I eventually, I just used to do nurse bank part time and I eventually got a, a more permanent gig in theatres and I saw everything. I knew I wanted to be a surgeon. I, I wanted to be a surgeon from the age of seven. I don't really know why. I don't have a medical background. I'm the first person in my extended family to go to university. But I had this surgeon idea in my mind. Um, and so being a healthcare assistant in theatres... I got to just sit at the back of the room and watch every specialty, every surgeon, the the anatomy, the, the operating, but also the interaction between surgeons, between surgeons and their team members. Um, and I, it, it was a, a really privileged position to be in, little did I know at the time, you know, mopping the floor in between cases gave me a lot of insight into how this world works. And certainly 
thinking back to then, nothing ever really did it for me the way that an open chest did it for me. You know, let's be honest. There is something about... Um, I remember waiting to see my first brain surgery. It was a trauma case. Um, they were doing a craniotomy. And I've never been so underwhelmed in my entire life. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but it was pretty boring and not much happened. Whereas you open a chest and you immediately have this um, dynamic, moving representation of life. Uh, and that's, that's big. Uh, and and I don't you know of course it becomes more of a day job and you see it all day every day but there are it's still there it's still that reminder that this is a big deal this is a huge privilege and uh, the anatomy is clearer it's slightly color-coded it's moving there's a way of seeing what things are in the way that you don't quite see in the abdomen and so I, I certainly had this like oh I think cardiac might be for me even way back then at med school um, and then the more I looked into it, the more I took the opportunity to do it, the more I met sort of like-minded people who seemed to have a similar approach to me. They liked the things I liked. They concentrated on the things that I liked. Uh, and I, I found some of my people in this specialty. And I guess the reality is that cardiac is, particularly cardi cardiac and thoracic are, are quite different. There's a lot of transferable skills, but they are quite different even though they're both in the chest. And for cardiac, the things that we do all day, every day, cutting, suturing, tying knots, they're the things that I could do in front of my television at home and practice. You know, they're very tangible, practicable skills. And the skill in cardiac is doing those things perfectly every time in the same way, efficiently. The other things that come in cardiac are the things that I'm also interested in, like non-technical skills, situational awareness, maintaining your optimal team performance, interacting with a perfusionist, an anaesthetist, a circulating nurse. When cardiac surgery is good, it's like choreography, it's ballet. You're, you, you are all moving through very set, predictable, routine moves. But when it's good, that is very, very good. My orthopedic friends do not understand this at all. You know, they cannot understand how I only do two operations, you know, essentially. But those two operations, you the skilling it is the repetition, the practice, yeah. Yeah. the getting it good and the optimizing your performance and the rest of the team's performance for that period of time. Mm. Uh, and then the bigger things come in managing an entire patient. What we do with cardiac surgery affects the whole body. So the physiology of that, the physiology of bypass, the care of patients on the intensive care unit, um, the disease that we deal with, we're not a specialty of diagnosis. You need to tell me what's wrong with the patient and I'll tell you if we can fix it. You know, it's not like general surgery where someone's walking in with a sign or a symptom and you have to figure out what's wrong. That's not how we work. Um, so if you like those things, cardiac's not for you. Um, but what we do have to do is a lot of decision making around understanding how to manage someone's physiology, how to get them through what is ultimately an incredibly big operation. And those are the things that I like and that attracted me to it. So those are the, the yeah. reasons I think I've... Just out of curiosity, did you always have med school as your drive and motivation from the beginning, say yeah. before your BSc? Yeah, I mean, so I always, I decided I wanted to be a surgeon when I was seven. 
Uh, again, I don't know where it came from, and I, my mum would kill me for this now, but when I told my mum this, she said, oh, Gillian, you have to be very clever to be a doctor. And that was the end of that conversation. <laughs> and certainly I grew up with a feeling that I wasn't quite good enough to be a doctor. I wasn't quite academically good enough. I wasn't, you know, I would struggle to be a doctor. Have you thought about nursing? Those kind of things. Um, so I, yeah, and then, but I was doing okay. And then um, when I did my A-levels, I very much discovered a social life and um, enjoying myself and probably didn't commit myself as much as I should. Uh, and then doing a BSc, I, I was certainly on a course with a lot of people who uh, wanted to do medicine, let's be honest. I, I think I think about this a lot now and the reality of that is that I was fortunate enough, even from my sort of less privileged socioeconomic background, to do two degrees and have my parents' support to do that. Huge student loan debt. <laughs> but I think if I were going through that system now, it would be an incredible struggle for me to do a BSc and then go off and go to medical school yeah. it, it was a struggle as it was and the way tuition fees have changed the cost mm. of living has changed I think we really do run the risk of losing people who could be very good yeah. simply because they haven't had that advantage of having access to to the idea of being a doctor yeah. and also having access to the incredible cost to become a doctor and the incredible cost to become a surgeon. Yeah, that's something very interesting. We, we're going to move on to that. Just before we move on, though, um, so I run MedCamps. We help students get into medicine. Yeah. But a big thing that I think students struggle with is very interesting that you've been through this path and I think you've got some great insight to help them is a lot of students don't get the A-levels they need for medicine. and they consider that graduate entry to medicine, but then they've heard rumors about it being very difficult. They've heard rumors about it, you know, not being very realistic. What advice would you give to those students who don't get their A-levels, but they're still set on medicine? I think um, the first thing that always springs to mind is that um, I am 95% confident that I can tell you I did not use anything from my A-level chemistry in the last uh, 12 years of my career. So the first thing is, the, the ginormous disappointment that you are not good enough because you didn't get an A in chemistry, you have to wipe that straight from your mind. The reason we set high A-level marks is not because you need to be that good to do medicine and be a doctor. It's because we are oversubscribed, it's highly competitive, and the easiest way to um, the, the easiest, cheapest, quickest way is to have very high A-level targets so you immediately narrow down your pool of people, okay? So the first big barrier is your own mental and emotional one where you think, well, this is, this is what the universe is telling me. I'm not good enough to do this. And it is simply not true. I have a huge bee in my bonnet about um, the lack of diversity in medicine and that isn't just about it's it is it's about diversity of thought as well as diversity of an identifiable characteristics and the reality is that we are predominantly and maybe it's fairer to say this of surgery than medicine generally but we are a group of people who generally come through a private school pathway who come through a system without being tested very much because we are trained to get the A-levels that we need to get into the university we want to get into, to get into medical school, to become a doctor. Most of our patients are dealing with a lot of things that many of us never have any experience of. 
And we have to be a more diverse group of people in order to have some empathy for the people that we're working with and to better serve the population that we're working with and to identify the needs of the population that we're working with. And that's a big problem, not maybe I'm obviously going beyond the individual here. This is a systems problem. But I think if you hold that in your mind and you really want to do medicine and you want to be a doctor, you have to get quite comfortable with knowing what you want to do, accepting that you might not be a doctor by the age of 25 and you might be a 35-year-old still trying to be a doctor and that's okay. Uh, accepting that you might look different from the person next to you, that you might be bringing a whole load of other things with you because you didn't go through that linear pathway that most of your colleagues went through. Once you get comfortable with that, you just have to work your ass off, really, don't you? But we're all doing that. You know, This is not me saying that people who've come through a more linear pathway haven't worked hard. Of course they have. But there are differences and there are differences in where people are starting from. And so I think if you want to do it, 100% my advice is do it. If you have to take a period of time to go and work or you have to take time out because of a family or other things that you have to do, never see those things as finite barriers or stopping points if it's something that you want to do. And I do recognise that's easier said than done. The other thing I would say is reach out to people, find your mentors, find the people who've had this experience who can remind you of these things in the most difficult times. Because the other thing that we often do is we see these people ahead of us and we make a lot of assumptions about the fact, oh, he, I bet she's never failed an exam. I bet she got everything, you know, I bet everything she's ever applied for, she's got. Uh, and it's just never true. Um, but we do have this incredible way of projecting some sort of... Um, Oh, I'm a surgeon. God gave me these skills to be. I was born doing this. Uh, and, you know, that therefore means that I've never had any failures. So when you look at me, you then go, oh, she's probably never had any failure. What, you know, or, oh, I can't possibly be like them because I've had this setback. Uh, and I will tell you now, it is 100% not true. Everyone ahead of you has had thousands of setbacks. So don't ever think that an individual setback that you have is your finite answer that you shouldn't be pursuing this anymore. That's a beautiful answer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, very motivating. Well, yeah, one, one thing I must, must say, just talking to you in like a couple of minutes, you're very, very well-spoken. Like, genuinely, I think I'm, I'm impressed. I feel like I'm listening yeah. to like the most motivating. I don't want to be like that. I'm, this is not my first rodeo, but <laughs> 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 um, this is, so again, I have, this is a whole other topic, but um, I often talk about um, performance in surgery and uh, acquisition of expert skill. I did a master's degree in medical education. Um, most of my friends and colleagues will uh, laugh because I beat this drum often that you can teach anyone to do anything if they want to learn it. Mm. Uh, in surgery, we, very, we, we don't have that approach at all. We genuinely believe that people are delivered these skills at birth uh, and you're simply trying to identify the people who've got it and the people who haven't. It's utter rubbish, okay? And there's a lot of evidence from the acquisition of expert skills and expert performance that tells you that's utter rubbish, you know? And that, this is from all things. This is from, like you know, uh, concert pianists and, and incredible ballerinas and, you know, ballet dancers, whatever it is, 
it's just not true. The thing that develops these skills is practice. So when I laugh and say this isn't my first rodeo, I, I talk to lots of people like this. I've done a few of these things before. So again, don't think that I just woke up like this and this is what I can do. I'm well practiced at having these kind of discussions, but thank you for, for saying that. I guess um, one of the things that I think is really important for, for people who listen to our podcast especially is kind of navigating the murky waters of medical school and trying to see how to best apply themselves. Mm -hmm. So I think a, a really good question that a lot of the viewers really want answered is if you were back in medical school, what's one to two things you wish you knew when you were still there? Um, gosh, so my honest answer is that if I knew a lot of the things then that I know now, I might not be in this position. <laughs> I might not have made some of the choices I've made. And and honestly, I, I don't regret those things, so I probably wouldn't change them. I, I don't know if there's things that, uh, without being too philosophical about it, you know, there are, are things that you just can't know. <laughs> the whole point of this is it's a process. And one of the brilliant things about a career in medicine you know, when we talk about how difficult the NHS is, it, the privilege of this job often comes in the personal growth you get from doing this job. There are very few jobs where you kind of feel, yes, that you contribute in such a huge way, but I as an individual have developed as a human being simply by doing this job for the last 12 years. Um, and so, so there's some things you just can't know. There are things that I think I did that I would advise all medical students to do. And I think those things are um, keep your eyes open. And, and I mean that in the, the really deliberate sense. So look at people a few stages ahead of you and see what they're doing and see if they're happy and see if those people doing the thing that you think you wanna do are having a good time. <laughs> are they enjoying their life choices? Um, how did they get there? How are they doing this job? Why does that person look like a good doctor to me? How can I copy what they're doing? A lot of it is observing and copying other people. And I certainly think for me, again, when I was in the healthcare assistant role as a medical student, the practical skills side of things, you know, as a junior doctor, as an F1, F2, you can lose hours of your night trying to get a cannula into someone <laughs> because it's a difficult cannula and they're calling you because no one else has got the cannula in but the reality is you've done even less than everyone else who's already had a go but if you can use as much time as possible in medical school just to practice I had a respiratory job one a respiratory placement once and I wasn't particularly interested in respiratory but every morning they would do an ABG on every single patient. So I just used to go in early and I'd do those ABGs. And guess what? I got really good at ABGs. So then at two in the morning when I had to do an ABG, I wasn't quite dreading it in the same way, thinking I'm gonna miss this. Um, and so I think the practical skills, copying the people ahead of you, you know, deciding what, um, what you wanna be like in future and going for it. And I think with that as well, you know, I often, um, I would do a night shift, for example. I'd stick around and ask the surgical reg if I could do a night shift on Friday or whatever. Or I would come in on a Saturday morning and work with the F2 who was covering surgical assessment unit. Uh, and you get a huge amount of that because you, you know what the job is about. You know what it's about on a Saturday morning rather than a Monday to Friday, nine to five. And then you have this confidence that you know you can do this. You know you can stay up all night if you need to and, and get this job done. 
And that's also the time that if you're helping out the surgical reg, I can almost guarantee that's when you're going to have those conversations about that audit that someone was thinking about doing or oh, I've got this idea for a project. Would you be interested in, in helping with that? And that's when those relationships are formed and those conversations happen. When you are showing how keen you are to be here and do this and help out. And not keen just to show it, but keen because it's about your development. You've come here on a Saturday because you want to learn how to be good at this job. That's a very attractive thing for someone to go, yeah, this, you know, I trust this guy is going to do this work because... He's here. Do you know what I mean? So I think those things definitely helped me to understand what the job was about. They therefore made me better when I started. People noticed that I was better. And if people think you're better, they are more likely to give you opportunities to get better. And that is a reality of what we're doing. So put the time in to get experience and exposure to things. I think it's important being proactive. I, I mean, as a medical student, it's easy to just try and get through the next stage of your yeah. exams and not not think about being you know developing those practical skills you just get the things you need signed off signed off and then you leave it 100%, but yeah. yeah if you have five cannulas to do on a placement do 15 you know for <laughs> yeah. you not yeah. for the tick yeah. uh, and and it's hard and it, it there'll be times when you actually don't feel like that and you need to have a bit of a break and you need to not push yourself um and the reality is you will be assessed on your exam result, you have to pass them, you know, so there'll be times when you have to leave the ward and you have to revise. But that isn't the intense period that we think it is. It, it tends to come in these sort of short waves, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I think as well that, you know, we we often, and this is true of postgraduate training, medical training and surgical training, I, there's a sort of idea that once you get into a training post, you just have to show up you show up and do the job and you will therefore learn how to do the job. You will therefore acquire the skills to do the job. You just, you just turn up. And there is a reality to that. You know, we, we've structured a whole entire profession around that apprenticeship style system. Turn up, work hard, be there long enough, you will acquire these skills. But the reality of that is actually that you can be much more efficient in acquiring those skills and much quicker to acquire those skills. And maximize those skills by being an active participant in what you're doing so turn up knowing what operation you're going to see as a yeah. student turn up knowing what operation you're going to see and have an idea what about what the steps of the operation will be yeah. when you're watching it you know what the steps are so if something looks a bit different make a little note in the piece of paper you brought into theater with you and later on ask someone why did i thought you were going to do this why did you do this have those conversations. If you don't feel you can ask someone, go home and Google it. You know, that level of active involvement in what you're seeing and doing will make you a better doctor more quickly than if you just turn up to theatre. Yeah. Oh yeah, I turned up, I watched this operation. I even feel that from, as a medical student, I don't know about you, but some days where I go in aimlessly, I get pretty much nothing done. But then the days where I'm like, okay, you know what, I'm gonna get these bloods done, I'm gonna take this, do that. I go in and pretty much complete all yeah. of it because you're there with a mission and you go after it. Yeah, yeah. I think, and I it think yeah, I, I completely agree. Just because of well, it's human nature to more so understand things once you've done them time and time again. Mm. And I'm very much an advocate for almost learning things to muscle memory. I call it your brain muscle memory instead. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that instead of just what 
as, as well as practical skills, even when you're learning medicine or doing you know, flashcards, flashcards and active recalling, making sure you repeat the steps over and over again to a point where you're not thinking about the actual content, but how to best deliver the content, how to go above and beyond to a point where it's just about how good can you make this experience for yourself and for others. Yeah, and I mean, what you're describing that, so every human brain has a finite capacity and thinking and doing are two separate activities. So if you are having to use capacity for the doing, you have less space for anything else. So this is a very um, a very tangible thing in, in theatre and operative practice. And we talk about this in the terms of human factors and cognitive behavioural related skills that if you can get something, an anastomosis, for example, or knot tying, down to muscle memory, so it requires very little or no capacity whatsoever, you will then have space available to be able to communicate effectively, mm. to understand your situational awareness and to know what your perfusionist is doing. It's all about buying that space. Now, on a normal day, maybe you don't need that extra space, but when things go wrong or you have an emergency or your stress levels rise and they eat up some of that cognitive capacity, that's when you need that space. Almost so, like driving a car, right? A hundred percent like driving a car. How many times have you driven home and thought, I have no recollection of how I got home because it, <laughs> it was just muscle memory yeah. in the same way, cognitive muscle memory. Uh, and so what you're trying to do as a, as a good doctor, you know, if, if you are agonizing over every cannula or everything is difficult, the job of a foundation doctor is hell. Because, you know, if you have to use that level of um, cognitive capacity or things are incredibly stressful because you don't know how to do them effectively or you can't remember things or you don't know, you don't have to know everything, but you need to know where to look to for help and you need to have a starting point. If you don't have that background, then your foundation job's are really, really tricky. And so as a medical student, your aim is to acquire this foundation for your practice. Doesn't mean that you're not going to fail at a cannula ever again, but really use that time to maximise on your active learning of what you're doing. Just showing up is probably not enough to learn how to do this job well in your four or five years as a medical student. So that brings part one of our interview with Dr. Jill Hardman to a close. We just wanted to give a special thanks to the staff at the Blackpool Education Centre for letting us film there. Um, you can get in contact with them uh, by following them on Twitter at BTH Education. Okay. Last but not least, I want to remind you guys to keep your eyes peeled for part two. Um, so don't forget to like, share with all your friends, subscribe, as well as hitting that notification bell for us if you would, uh, so that you can get notified when our next few episodes come up. All right. Other than that, we'll see you guys in our next episode.